Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Morning, everyone. Great to be with you again. And uh, we're looking at the strange world of one John. It's been a, a great delight for me to kind of get uh, stuck into it in the last few weeks again and see things from a different angle. One John has his own shtick, doesn't he? Uh, what we do in Ridley Chapel usually is our bread and butter preaching is what we call expository preaching. Uh, there's topical preaching. That's the other main type of preaching. So topical preaching is where the preacher has something that God's laid on their heart and just shares it from all over the Bible. Um, expository preaching is meant uh, to um, have a way of framing the sermon, both its content, its structure, its applications, and its tone from the passage in front of you. Uh, it's not, not from the heart, because the preacher's also meant to take it to heart before sharing it. It's got two big advantages. One, it makes clear your derived authority. So rather than thinking... Uh, yeah, Brian's saying this, it's much clearer that it's God's word that's saying this and I'm just the conduit, I'm the, uh, um, the messenger in bringing God's word. The other benefit is that your preaching has variety, both in content and tone. So some things I would just never preach on um, if it were not expository preaching. And today's passage has one of those things. Did you notice in verse 27... It says, you do not need anyone to teach you. A really dangerous thing to say at the beginning of semester before census date. So we're going to concentrate on that little bit a bit later and make sure you understand that in context, okay? <laughs> there is a sense in which you do need someone to teach you. Uh, more seriously, um, 1 John 2, 18 to 27, which Richard read a moment ago, is bookended by a warning about people leaving the faith. In verse 19, uh, have your Bible open, that'd be good. And then in verse 27, it ends with an exhortation to abide or remain in him, in Christ at the end. And there's also warnings in verse 26 about being led astray. So apparently John discerned in his context a potential threat to the believers that they might stray from the faith. They might be led away from faith in Christ. So is staying a Christian a challenge in our day. Once again, I tapped on the shoulder a colleague who knows more about these things than me, and I'll probably butcher the stats, but here we go. Graham Stanton tells me <laughs> that uh, some silly survey in 2018 compared to 2008 in Australia, people going to church once a month or more dropped from 16.3% to 13%. Now, that can't be a failure, just a failure to get new Christians. That has to be some Christians departing from the faith. Uh, the same goes for children. Uh, census in Australia in uh, 2006 said 58.2% of the population identified as some kind of Christian. Um, and then in 2011, that dropped to 56.3. Then in 2016, just five years later, to 47.5. So it seems lots of people are losing their faith. And if you read the American blogs, you'll know that millennials and, and Gen Z uh, are struggling with this as well. That's Gen said in Z in real English. 
Um, and obviously, it's a personal thing as well. I know stories of people I grew up with who sadly have left the faith uh, for different reasons. A few years ago at a FACCON, which is not as exciting as it sounds, it's a faculty conference where we go away together for three days and complain about the students. Um, <laughs> we, we do other things as well. We, we, the, the year before, we, we tried to find a good tattoo for each member of the faculty. So that was, no one went ahead and got it. But that was, <laughs> I think uh, what they came up with for me was least worst option. <laughs> it's a bit cruel, wasn't it? Anyway, uh, then the next year, what we worked on was not sharing our testimony, how you became a Christian, but why are you still a Christian? What's enabled you to hang in there? as a Christian. And that relates to our passage. I'll just briefly tell you my five reasons for staying a Christian. Uh, one is my experience of God. So it hasn't been that dramatic very often, but I have received comfort from God. Um, I've received um, answered prayer on occasion. And I'm, uh, to coin my own term, I'm God smacked when I go on holidays to the beach or in the mountains or watch a sunset. So I have that sense of God. Uh, two is other Christians, not the one in the headlines, but ordinary Christians living the Christian life. So uh, Barb, an elderly woman at the church I was at till recently, uh, took in Muslim young uh, immigrant refugee men into a home, no agenda, just looked after them until they could get on their feet. Just amazing stuff. Uh, three is the Psalms. I think uh, the Psalms have sustained what... Uh, patchy prayer life I have because it, it kind of gives you words to say. You can plug in your own troubles and illnesses and enemies. Uh, most of all, it's Jesus. So Jesus is unique, isn't he? So uh, my way of saying it, there's lots to say about Jesus, of course, is there are lots of people in the world to admire who are very humble and loving. And then there are people in the world who have great authority and power. Only Jesus has both remarkably humble and extraordinary love, and yet he can say, I will judge the world. All authority has been given to me. So it still sends shivers up my spine. So um, I'm enamoured by uh, the Lord Jesus. That would be another reason I'm still a Christian. The fifth reason relates to our passage that we finally got there, and it's the gospel story, which is a story in which we live. So... Um, that story makes sense of my existence. It gives me hope. It deals with my longing for justice. Uh, it has a way of dealing with the evil in my own heart. It's a story I'm a part of and subscribe to. And I think it's true. That's uh, fairly significant as well. That's what keeps me going. 1 John 2 offers several things that fit into the category of our lives as stories. How we fit into the gospel story of Jesus as the Christ. And he insists that that's the way to keep persevering, to know your story. So most of us think of ourselves in terms of a story. Your story connects you as a baby to who you are now, to who you'll be when you're old. Yep. And uh, there's some urban myth about every seven years all the cells change and you're a different person every seven years. It's just rubbish, of course. Some cells are gone in a few days, others last pretty much forever. Your brain lasts quite a long time, which is handy. <laughs> and then at morning tea, if you want to get to know someone, you kind of, uh, you can perceive stuff about them and uh, you, you can ask about their hobbies and whatever. But really to get to know someone, you have to ask about their story, don't you? 
What's your family background? What in the past has made you you? What do you struggle with? What defines you? Where are you heading? Those kind of big story categories. And we actually think of our lives in terms of stories. Uh, we might say um, Amanda's starting a new chapter in her life. Uh, or we might say that uh, Beck is turning over a new leaf. Or Isaac is acting out of character. Or Brian's lost the plot. <laughs> so we do, we do think of ourselves as stories. And our, our passage tells a story about the lives of all believers in Christ. And it's John's own way of saying it. He does his own thing, doesn't he? So every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's so obvious, but it's important. You have past turning points. You've got a problem to be addressed. You've got a present struggle and a future hope. That's what makes a life story. Uh, Tim Keller says it, so that's obviously right. He says, uh, everyone lives out and operates out of some narrative identity, whether it's thought out or reflected upon or not. And you are your story. That's who you are. That's one way of thinking about your identity. So all these elements are here in really fresh language in our passage. And there's lots of ways of telling the gospel story of which you're a part. But John, as I said, has his own distinctive and compelling way. So the beginning of our story, we read in verse 23, is about acknowledging the Son. That's his way of saying repentance and faith. Um, in verse 22, it's about confessing that Jesus is the Christ. And that's really code. That's a loaded phrase, Jesus is the Christ. That's a sentence, actually. Andrew Malone will tell me that. It's not a phrase. And uh, so um, it's Jesus is the Christ means he's the long-awaited Davidic king who's come to sort out the world. He reveals God. He redeems us. He reigns now and in eternity. He's crucified and risen. All of that's kind of packed into Jesus is the Christ. And the really weird one is we receive the anointing when we begin our story as children of God. We'll come back to that. In the middle of our story, the job is to remain in the Son and the Father, verse 24 and verse 27, where to stick with the original message and experience, verse 27, and where to resist the Antichrist, verses 18 and 22. Again, say what? So that's a really odd moment in John's fresh telling of our story. And then at the end of the story, 18, we have the last hour. And then, of course, in 25, um, such a poignant moment as Richard read it, the promise of eternal life. Now, note, too, that it claims to be not only a good story, but a true story, verses 20 and 21. You know the truth. Uh, it says it several times, three times. So the Christian story, it really happened. It's not just a nice story. And that's one of the things we hopefully help you with at college to understand the historical context of the New Testament, that there are good reasons for thinking that Jesus really did live and really did teach and do miracles. He really did die on a cross. He really did rise from the dead. Now, as I said, the Bible has a number of ways of telling the story. And uh, the two distinctives of John's version that I want to concentrate on are the Antichrist and the anointing. Yep, they're the ones you really got to sit with and think, what on earth is he talking about? But they're the two main points of the passage. The first main point of the passage is this. John says we must resist the Antichrist. Now, anti, as a prefix or as a preposition, 
could mean substitute or it could mean against. I think both kind of work here. So the Antichrist is a substitute for Christ and he is against Christ. Um, certainly Antichrist talks not big in our language, not that common in the New Testament either, although there are some analogies. So other authors do work with this stuff and it's interesting that we, we kind of don't have it in our um, everyday speech as believers. It's a bit embarrassing really, isn't it? Let's have a think about it though. Uh, in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, you've got the abomination that causes desolation. Again, not uh, on anyone's fridge or Instagram. <laughs> An appalling sacrilege that scandalises Christian sensitivities. In 2 Thess 2, you've got the man of lawlessness, tyrannical individual who commands unconditional obedience, deceiving God's people with his impressive gifts. Terrible anti-Christian influence in the world. In Revelation, you've got the beast a political or economic system of oppression, some kind of ideology bent on the church's destruction. Uh, so maybe it's maybe thinking about world history, it's not as far-fetched as uh, we first thought. Uh, maybe there are some antichrists in the world. Um, I don't find it helpful to make specific identifications, but there is a pretty tyrannical guy out there wearing a cross around his neck at the moment wreaking havoc in Europe. Um, what John's point is, is vigilance. And it's interesting, he doesn't identify the Antichrist just as an individual. He says in verse 18, many Antichrists have come. And then chapter 4, verse 3, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So I think one way of thinking about the Antichrist is just the principle in our world of opposition to Christ and to Jesus as the Christ. Yep, so that, that's really what we're talking about. And the point's clear. Staying the course as a believer is not automatic. It's not just a human decision. There are forces at play beyond our imagining, diabolical forces that threaten our faith in Jesus as the Christ. Whatever else it means, John's talk of the Antichrist is a wake-up call and a summons to vigilance so that we can persevere in the faith and not be led astray. So to resist the Antichrist, John says, you should remember your anointing. Really? Okay, so anointing's even less common in the New Testament. And anointing, of course, just means to smear someone. But usually it's in the context of um, not smear, but literally smear. Yeah, not in the um, Instagram smearing thing. So, um, so anointing is, is marking someone out. As different, yep. So the anointing here is really about something to do with when you were marked out by God. But what, what's it actually referring to? It, just a little um, sidebar. It, the commentators, I think they're probably right, they get into some mirror reading here, which is just a technical term for reading between the lines. They think maybe the false teachers John was worried about are coming along and saying, look, you, you people need the anointing. You need some new teaching, some new experience that'll really get you to live a higher Christian life. And so John takes that and gives it his own spin. And this is a very common approach in the New Testament. It's called contextualization. Yep. You basically deal with what's being said in a certain context and address it in those terms. So you, you get this all over the place. So Paul talks about wisdom and spirituality in 1 Corinthians, pretty well nowhere else. He talks about mystery and fullness in Colossians. 
talks about power and authority in Ephesians. All of those things are pretty concentrated in those books. It's because there's something going on in the churches. And if we had time, we could speculate. John does this himself in the Gospel of John. Instead of talking about the kingdom of God, he tends to talk about eternal life because that kind of relates better to his audience. What's he referring to with the anointing? Um, It could be the gift of the Spirit. He does say in 20 and 21, you know the truth because of your anointing. And in John's gospel, it's uh, the Spirit who leads you into the truth, maybe. Although we've only got Father and Son mentioned in our passage, but maybe the Spirit's there in the shadows. It could be referring to their baptism because later Christians, some of the church fathers actually talk about anointing in those terms, uh, equating the two. Or it could be the catechism by which uh, early Christians simply meant the the basic teaching about the gospel and the Christian life that you learnt. And you can see that maybe in 24 and 27, where in 24 it's the teaching remains in you And then in 27, it's the anointing that remains in you. So that's kind of suggestive. So I'm just going to have my cake and eat it too and say that what John is saying is to resist the Antichrist, remember your spiritual experience at your conversion. You were baptised, you received the Spirit, you got taught the basics of the faith and come back to them. That's how you stay the course in the Christian life. It's not some extra teaching you need. It's not some new experience. It's when you see someone get baptised, you think about your own baptism, that uh, dying to, 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 to sin and death and rising with Christ to new life. Yep. So um, yesterday's passage, of course, added lots to our story too. We're children of God. We have forgiveness. Uh, the word of God dwells in us. We're strong. So there's, there's, there's a lot in that package. But I think thinking about our lives as stories can be very helpful. What's not often realised is to leave the faith is to go into a different story. We're all living stories. The two main options for alternative stories to the Christian faith, and I'm dealing with them ridiculously quickly, are secular materialism. So basically the problem to be solved is my Uh, lack of material things or my lack of freedom in matters sexual or something like that and the struggle is to find that freedom and the end and there are defining moments education technology is going to solve all our problems and we're heading towards this wonderful future yep the story is it it's a pup you're being sold a pup with secular materialism it doesn't take seriously how how evil is in the heart of every person and we don't have the resources for this wonderful future that is being promised. So in the end, it's a tragedy because it's a God that fails. The other main story, and this is really ridiculous to talk about it so quickly, is the story of social justice. The world is a place of discrimination and prejudice. And what we should do is address those issues of discrimination and prejudice, and we will change human nature. We might need to cancel a few people along the way who can't be changed, but that's okay, because we're heading towards this great future. The problem with that story is that we don't have the resources from within us to do that. We need something from outside to change the world that dramatically. It's not that we shouldn't address injustice. We should, but it's with a different framework and a different purpose. I'm sure that uh, was too quick for anyone's liking, but anyway. Okay, so, so basically, to remain in him, 
you have to resist the Antichrist and remember your anointing. And that's where John ends in verse 27, remain in him. Although uh, some of my nerdy colleagues will tell me it could actually be an indicative, not imperative. And instead of uh, remain in him, it's ambiguous. It could be you do remain in him. And the Net Bible has that. The King James used to have that as well. Uh, but I think the imperative is, is the point. Remain in him by resisting the Antichrist, remembering your anointing. Remain in the confession that Jesus is the Christ. All false teaching underestimates Jesus Christ and our completeness in him. If you want to stay in the faith, you grow up in him, you put him on, you learn him, you imitate him, you stay in union with him. As Colossians 2 verse 7 says, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue in him. So next time someone says to you, what's your family background? You say, oh, I'm from a really big, unruly family. It's called the Church of God and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of God. Uh, what in the past has made you who you are today? I uh, got anointed. <laughs> and uh, what do you struggle with? Uh, the Antichrist. <laughs> and where are you heading in life? The promise of eternal life. Praise God.